Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. We have the privilege of being in North Seattle today where we are meeting with our amazing fellows from University of Washington, the real UW, and that's going to be Tomio Tran, Vid Yogeswaran, and Amanda Kai. And we're going to be discussing a very challenging case in cardiology today. Guys, why don't you say hello and introduce yourselves to the audience? Hi there. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. My name is Tomio. I am one of the second year general cardiology fellows, and I'm really excited to be inducted into the Healy Honor Roll for the CardioNerds. Hi, everyone. My name is Ben. I'm one of the first year fellows here at UW. It's my first year in Seattle, and I'm really thankful to be here. Hi, everyone. My name is Amanda Kai. I'm a second year adult congenital heart disease fellow, graduating this year and entering the workforce with a focus on cardioobstetrics. I am a PGY10, so really looking forward to graduation. Very excited to be here on Cardio Nerds. Well, Vid, Amanda, Tomio, it is amazing to have you here with us, and thanks for introducing yourselves. Tomio did mention the Cardio Nerds Healy Honor Roll, and we are super excited to have him as the ambassador for that. And as a reminder, the Cardio Nerds Healy Honor Roll is a list of cardiovascular fellowship programs which support the Cardio Nerds mission to democratize cardiovascular education. These programs foster the Cardio Nerds spirit by nominating a Cardio Nerds ambassador, such as Tomio, and contributing to open access content by way of CNCR cases and other kinds of content on the Cardio platform. So this is like super fun and also collaborative and we think very important in the field of cardiology. So Tomio, thanks for bringing us this amazing case and bringing us these new great friends, Vid and Amanda. So we're in North Seattle. We're excited to talk about cardiology, but take us to one of your favorite places so we can have the discussion. So we're actually going to go a little ways outside of Seattle today. We're going to take the light rail to downtown. We're going to take a walk over to the pier, and then we're going to take the ferry across the Puget Sound so we can get some fresh air, look at the scenery, maybe spot some wildlife. But before that, we're going to pick up some pastries and some local roaster coffee before we hop on the ferry. You had me at pastries, but then you like double down with the coffee. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> you, You've already found your way into my heart. So. Now that we've settled in, we're checking out the wildlife. Let's get started. Okay, so we have a 40-year-old woman with a history of recurrent exertional syncope who presents to the emergency department following a witness out of hospital cardiac arrest. The patient was in her normal state of health when she suddenly had a loss of consciousness episode while kissing her partner at home. Her partner called 911 and EMS quickly arrived within 10 minutes of the call while her partner was instructed to perform CPR. They found the patient apneic and unresponsive while receiving bystander CPR. Initial rhythm check showed narrow complex tachycardia at a rate of 136 beats per minute. SpO2 was 76% and the patient was pulseless. After three rounds of CPR by EMS with one milligram of epinephrine, return of spontaneous circulation was achieved. She was then intubated for airway protection and then she again lost pulses and CPR was reinitiated. Return of spontaneous circulation was achieved after an additional round of CPR. Post-ROSC vitals showed a heart rate of 115 beats per minute, a blood pressure of 184 over 80 millimeters mercury. They performed a 12-lead ECG that showed that the patient was in atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular rate in the 110s, though the patient did convert to sinus rhythm on route to the hospital. Wow, a 40-year-old woman with a cardiac arrest? She's so young, and her partner must have been terrified. 
I feel like when I think of young patients with cardiac arrest, I always triple check to make sure I'm not missing. But the first and most important thing I want to know when a patient comes in with a cardiac arrest is what is a presenting rhythm? So my first branch point and what our ACLS algorithms teach us is one, is this a shockable rhythm such as VT or ventricular fibrillation? Or are we dealing with an asystolic or PA arrest, which would lead us down a different algorithm? Hopefully EMS was able to capture a rhythm strip as this information can be critical. In any case, for most etiologies of cardiac arrests, I look at my five H's and five T's. Was this patient hypoxic, hypohyperthermic, hypohyperkalemic, hypovolemic, or is there an issue with hydrogen? And then the five T's, tension pneumothorax, is this a case of cardiac tamponade, acute thrombosis, thromboemboli, or is this toxin-induced? It looks like our patient was in a PA arrest, but in patients with shockable rhythms, I'm most concerned for cardiac etiology, whether that's active ischemia or concern for electrolyte abnormalities. Thankfully, with EMS colleagues and the collateral information they gain, by the time we usually meet them, we have a lot more information and are in a much better place. But the few minutes post-arrest are often the most critical pieces. So Tomio, was there any other information that EMS was able to provide? Great points, Vid. Yeah, so we were able to obtain collateral information from EMS, as well as the patient's partners and some trace records through the electronic medical record. Her partner provided the patient's medical history, saying that the patient was generally healthy. However, she did have a long history of recurrent exertional chest pain and prior episodes of exertional syncope, for which she has seen several doctors for dating as far back as four years. She was hospitalized for syncope prior to moving to Washington. However, further details about the hospitalization were unavailable. While she was here, she had seen some doctors in Washington and had some preliminary workup. She had a brain MRI, which showed some cephalomalacia. It was thought that she may have had seizures, so she was referred to neurology. After neurology evaluated her, they felt that she did not really have any neurologic etiologies to her syncopal episodes and felt that this could be cardiac etiology because she was suffering from profound dyspnea on exertion and they felt that the seizures would be unlikely. She was eventually evaluated by cardiology who ordered a stress echocardiogram just given the exertional nature of her symptoms, but this was not completed prior to her current presentation. Otherwise, she hasn't had any other significant past medical history. Specifically, she hasn't had any tobacco, recreational drug, or alcohol use, and she hasn't had any family history of congenital heart disease or sudden cardiac or unexplained deaths. So in short, we have a patient who has exertional syncope and exertional chest pain. Vid, do you have a framework for identifying and treating the causes of syncope? Wow. So this patient has had exertional syncope for years. That seems like a huge red flag. I would be pretty concerned for cardiac etiology, and it's pretty worrisome that she hasn't already had a diagnosis. But I think for me, things that are jumping out right now is, is this cardiac? Is this due to an arrhythmia or a structural etiology? But to take a step back, when I usually approach syncope, I usually ask, is this true syncope? Syncope is a temporary loss of consciousness resulting from a transient decrease in cerebral blood flow. And most of the time, especially in young patients and 40-year-olds, it's self-limited and pretty benign. But like in our case, it might be the sign of something more malignant or life-threatening. I think there's several articles that have said the number one thing to do in a patient who you're evaluating for syncope is to do a careful history and physical exam. Based on that, I would classify someone as low or high risk. Given the exertional syncope in this case, I would classify her as high risk. But for the low-risk categories, I think of young, healthy patients with episodes with a prodrome, whether that's sweating and nausea, precipitated by pain or stress, or something that's situational. And these are my reflux-mediated syncope groups, which can be vasovagal or situational. A second low-risk category I typically think of is orthostatic hypotension. 
Typically, it's uncommon in young patients and patients less than 40, but I will typically obtain orthostatic vital signs on all patients, look at their medications, and try to get a general sense on if there's something autonomic or drug-related. In this post-arrest patient or in patients who have recurrent syncopal episodes, I would have a very low etiology to evaluate for a cardiac issue. All patients should get a baseline ECG, and those without a clear neurocardiogenic cause should warrant some type of echo evaluation. But for my cardiac etiologies, I think of structural heart disease and arrhythmias. So for structural, I think of obstruction to forward flow through valvular stenoses, which typically are left-sided when they cause syncopal symptoms, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and in some cases, tamponade and cardiac tubers. Under arrhythmias, we typically think of any brady or tachyarrhythmia, but it's more commonly sinus node disease, high-degree heart block, and ventricular tachycardia. But there are also other causes such as PEs, pulmonary hypertension, and AFib that may contribute. It's interesting that this patient was briefly in AFib after achieving ROSC, which might provide us with a clue of the etiology of her history of exertional syncope. So most patients with AFib and RBR do not present with syncope unless they have some type of underlying structural heart disease. So if she has valvular stenosis, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or an intracardiac lesion that obstructs forward blood flow, the loss of atrial kick and subsequent decreased ventricular failing that results when she is in an irregular rhythm or tachycardic might be enough to cause reduced preload and a subsequent drop in cardiac output and subsequent cardiovascular collapse. So I'm pretty concerned right now that maybe that's what's happening. Tomio, what happened after she arrived at the hospital? When she got to the hospital, they hooked her up to all the monitors. Her initial vital signs were notable for hypotension with a systolic blood pressure of 76 and a diastolic blood pressure of 64 as well as sinus tachycardia at about a rate of 100 beats per minute. She was intubated and sedated, but the rest of her physical exam was relatively unremarkable. Specifically, her neurologic exam was limited due to the sedation. However, her pupils were 3 millimeters and reactive bilaterally, and she had an intact cough and gag reflex. Her initial laboratory data was remarkable for hypokalemia at 2.5, a mild transaminitis with an AST of 138 and an ALT of 98, and severe acidosis with a pH of 7.12. Her lactate was also severely elevated at 11.2, which likely indicates that it's a type A because of tissue hypoperfusion from her cardiac arrest. An ECG showed that she was in sinus tachycardia with signs of biatrial enlargement, and a chest X-ray showed patchy parenchymal opacification of multiple lung fields concerning for aspiration, which is common after a cardiac arrest event. Interesting. Tomio, I noticed that the pulse pressure was pretty narrow on presentation, 76 over 64. That's not typically something that we see in young patients and particularly not something that we expect after presentation with cardiac arrest. Is there any sort of explanation that you can give for this narrow pulse pressure, a differential in this patient? Interesting that you picked out the pulse pressure. The pulse pressure can be very useful in identifying certain disease states. We see a lot of patients with cardiac arrest, and a lot of times we don't see this very narrow pulse pressure. The pulse pressure is defined as the difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressure. The systolic blood pressure is the maximum pressure experienced in the aorta during cardiac contraction. The diastolic pressure is the minimal pressure during relaxation, and a normal pulse pressure is typically around 40 millimeters mercury. This patient's was about 12 millimeters mercury. A pulse pressure over 100 is considered high, while a pulse pressure that's less than 25% of the systolic pressure is considered narrow. Increases in pulse pressure can occur in normal athletic individuals due to increased stroke volume during exercise and decreases in systemic vascular resistance. 
Pathologically, a wide pulse pressure can occur with aortic regurgitation due to the increased stroke volume, leading to increased systolic pressure with low diastolic blood pressure due to regurgitation during diastole, severe iron deficiency anemia due to low blood viscosity, hyperthyroidism by increasing the systolic pressure, and arteriosclerosis due to less arterial compliance. Additionally, some of the more common things that we could see, and it's actually iatrogenic, is shunting due to arteriovenous fistulas, such as in dialysis patients. On the other hand, a narrow pulse pressure can also indicate a problem with stroke volume and thus low cardiac output. Our patient, again, had a narrow pulse pressure of 12. So the etiologies that jump to my mind are heart failure, blood loss, hypovolemia, some kind of valvular stenosis, and cardiac tamponade. This can also be due to medications and extreme vasodilation. Tomio, I completely agree with you. This is such a valuable clue as to what's going on. I'm a structural fellow this year, and so I spend multiple days of my week performing TAVR, and at our institution, we measure pre and post gradients. So I'm always looking at pulse pressure and getting a sense of how things are going to be, whether they're pre-TAVR and I see a wide pulse pressure indicating that they have stiff pipes or aortic regurgitation. And then post-TAVR, you want to see that pulse pressure return, not too much to make you concerned for, again, aortic regurgitation or paravalvular leak, but you want to see that they have that stroke volume that's coming out and that the implant was great and they've got a good, competent aortic valve now and they're actually able to generate a good pressure. So pulse pressure is something that I'm very much looking at. And when you have a post-cardiac arrest patient like this, a lot of times if the etiology is something that occurred at the moment of the arrest and then was corrected, they will be hyperdynamic, right? Like if somebody was hypovolemic and they had a cardiac arrest and you started resuscitating them, they're going to be hyperdynamic. A sepsis state is going to be hyperdynamic. But when somebody goes into pulseless electrical activity and you resuscitate them and you're getting them back and you see this really, really narrow pulse pressure, that is a big red flag that the underlying etiology is not completely reversed. There's still something going on at the core of this patient's presentation that still needs to be addressed. And especially as Amanda said earlier, young patients really have that reserve and we really do not expect to see such a narrow pulse pressure. So that gets me thinking about either pump failure, valvular failure, pericardial failure, electrical failure, something going on with the heart that is causing this poor stroke volume and set that patient up to have their arrest to begin with. And so I definitely want to know more about what's going on with this patient's cardiac function. Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit more about her hospital course. So when she hit the door, she was resuscitated with IV fluids. She was started on vasopressors due to the low blood pressures. And then targeted temperature management with a goal of 33 degrees Celsius was initiated because this was an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. At our institution, we perform PAN scans, which is a CT scan of the head, chest, abdomen, pelvis to rapidly identify any causes of cardiac arrest through a sudden death CT protocol. Sometimes if we have the foresight, we can also add on a coronary CT angiogram to evaluate any coronary causes of cardiac arrest. So the patient got her PAN scan and on review, we found a really remarkable finding in her CT chest. It showed a thin membrane within the left atrium with a thin orifice communicating between the two chambers of her left atrium. Because of her low pulse pressure, our concern for cardiogenic shock, we ordered an echocardiogram to better understand the patient's anatomy and cardiac function. Her echo showed that she had a normal left ventricle with normal ejection fraction. She had a mildly dilated right ventricle with concentric hypertrophy and normal function, severe tricuspid regurgitation with a pulmonary artery systolic pressure of at least 93 millimeters mercury 
from her tricuspid regurgitation jet. And then also it corroborated that there was a left intraatrial membrane with a mean gradient of 25 millimeters of mercury across it by continuous wave Doppler. Wow, Tomio, this is already a very, very concerning case. We had this young patient who came in with a very concerning history of exertional syncope and then with almost this culmination of a cardiac arrest that requires a significant amount of resuscitation. And we had talked about this narrow pulse pressure before and concern for a structural cardiac abnormality or significant cardiac dysfunction. And now we're finding out that she has what appears to be a congenital anomaly that may be setting her up for this. And so we have this membrane in the left atrium that's calcified and causing kind of two chambers within the left atrium. That's something that comes to my mind is consistent or concerning for core triatriatum. And then we have these very impressive changes in her echo in terms of hemodynamics. Okay, we have a mean gradient across this membrane of 25 millimeters of mercury. I mean, that is nuts. Thinking about the end diastolic filling pressure in the ventricle normally being something like 10 to 15, a low filling chamber. And we know that when the mitral valve is open, the left atrium is seeing the same pressures. So the lungs should be seeing those same pressures from the venous side. And that should all be 10 to 15 or something like that. And here we're seeing a 25 millimeter gradient across the membrane, which means that the lungs are seeing on the mean at least 25 millimeters of mercury. That's not something that the lungs were built to handle. And at the same time, we see that the patient has a pulmonary artery systolic pressure estimated to be at least 93 millimeters of mercury, which is nuts considering that her systemic blood pressure is so incredibly low. So her RV pressures are basically equal, if not even higher than her systemic pressures. So we're seeing that there's an anatomical problem with this patient's heart. And we're also seeing severe hemodynamic consequences because of that, setting her up to be somebody that may have sustained this cardiac arrest. So I'm so glad that Amanda is here with us because she is a adult congenital heart disease fellow at UW. And I definitely think we need her expertise to put this all together and think about how we can approach this echocardiogram and the diagnosis. So Amanda, what do you think? Yes, a very interesting case. I think we have to hone in on the imaging findings of this membrane in the left atrium. The first thing that pops to my mind is a diagnosis of core triatriatum, which is exactly what it sounds like. There is a membrane that septates the left atrium such that there are two atria on the left side and one on the right side, or vice versa, there are two atria on the right side and one on the left side. So if there is a membrane in the left atrium, it's cord triatriatum sinister. A membrane in the right atrium is called cord triatriatum dexter. These are very rare congenital heart disease diagnoses comprising anywhere from 0.1 to 0.4% of all congenital heart diseases. And actually, the incidence and prevalence is unknown because a lot of patients do not have any obstruction or any clinical significance to these membranes if there's no gradient across these membranes and they can live an entire lifetime with no sequelae of disease and no hemodynamic consequences. But this patient obviously had a membrane that was significant as seen on imaging. We have to bring it back to the gradient that was seen across this membrane on echo and tie that into how she presented with her cardiac arrest. Interestingly, we see some downstream effects of this membrane and this significant gradient as well. We see that she had pulmonary congestion. We see that she had pulmonary hypertension with an elevated estimated PASP. She has signs of RV volume and pressure overload as well as RV dysfunction. So there's a lot to unpack here, but I'm very concerned about this obstructive membrane and this diagnosis of core triatriatum sinister. Thanks, Amanda, for bringing that up. Is all the information we currently have sufficient to make a diagnosis of core atriotum? I'm also wondering if we need to be thinking about other competing differential diagnoses. 
Great questions, Tomio. So diagnoses of core triatriatum currently is made by imaging. We don't have enough data about these patients just because it's such a rare diagnosis. We don't have enough data to support any physical exam findings to make the diagnosis otherwise. There are, however, some other differentials on my list for what this membrane could be. There is something called the supermitral ring that can be part of a larger constellation of left-sided lesions that comprise something called Schoen complex. Other lesions associated in the Schoen complex include a parachute mitral valve, where the mitral valve is anchored by a single papillary muscle, subaortic stenosis, aortic valve stenosis due to valvular abnormalities such as a bicuspid aortic valve, and abnormalities of the aorta such as hypoplasia or coarctation. Supermitral ring is important on this differential list because it may not be the only obstructive or the most obstructive lesion in shown complex. So it's important to do a really thorough assessment of the entire left-sided structures to determine whether or not patient has shown complex and to identify where the hemodynamically significant culprit lesions are. Core triatriatum sinister can also rarely be seen as a part of Schoen complex, but it can also exist entirely on its own as a separate entity. And there are some clinical implications for core triatriatum sinister itself. The anatomy that differentiates a supramitral ring and a core triatriatum sinister is where the pulmonary veins and the left atrial appendage are incorporated into the compartments. In core triatriatum sinister, the pulmonary veins enter a top chamber, the more superior and posteriorly oriented chamber, and that is separated by the core triatriatum membrane from the more inferior and anterior located chamber, which contains the left atrial appendage. In supramitral ring, the pulmonary veins and the left atrial appendage are contained in one left atrial chamber. And so in cases where patients have core triatriatum sinister undergoing EP studies, such as AFib ablation with pulmonary vein isolation, you can get into trouble with a transeptal puncture that's a little too high or a little too low. If you are entering the lower, more inferior and anteriorly located chamber, you may not be able to reach the pulmonary veins in core triatriatum sinister. Whereas if your transeptal puncture is higher, you may not have enough room to manipulate the catheter to perform a PPI. Thank you for that background. I'm just wondering, I'm noticing that this patient also has really severe pulmonary hypertension. Do you think that the pulmonary hypertension and the atriatum membrane are linked? Definitely in this case, with a mean gradient of 25 millimeters of mercury, that's very significant. We consider a mean gradient of 8 millimeters of mercury or higher significant as related to obstruction of blood flow. Many times these patients who have high gradients, initially they present with all kinds of clinical symptoms early on. So if you're a neonate or a baby, you may not have symptoms, but you'll present with pulmonary congestion, respiratory difficulty or respiratory infections. And if you are an adult that develops symptoms later on, you might complain of dyspnea on exertion, chest discomfort. And these are all sequelae of this left-sided obstruction. And similar to the case of mitral stenosis, when you have really elevated left atrial pressures because of an obstruction to LV inflow, you get pulmonary congestion and you can get pulmonary hypertension, initially passive, that can lead to a fixed obstruction and adverse vascular remodeling. Amanda, thank you so much for going through that complex anatomy and the complex variations on atria pathology and setting the stage to understanding core triatriatum. I've been learning so much from our adult congenital heart disease series, particularly thinking about congenital heart disease 
And one thing that we try to hammer in with that series is that you have an anatomical abnormality that leads to a hemodynamic consequence. And we've already said this multiple times with this particular patient, but her echo really demonstrates that we have an anatomical abnormality in the atrium that sets us up to have a very profound hemodynamic consequence, namely this gradient across that membrane. And that gradient of 25 is seen by the pulmonary system, which is leading to pulmonary hypertension. And that is causing consequences on the right ventricular side as well. So I definitely could always use a refresher in the classifications of pulmonary hypertension and see how this patient fits into that classification, because that may dictate on how we treat the patient and how we think of the patient. So Vid, what's your approach to pulmonary hypertension, particularly the differential diagnosis? And where do you think this patient lands in terms of types of pulmonary hypertension and etiologies? Yeah. So I feel like one group is definitely standing out at me, but to take a step back, I typically follow the WHO classification system when I approach pulmonary hypertension. I usually think of group one as my true pulmonary arterial hypertension patients, patients with idiopathic, heritable, toxin-induced, portopulmonary, HIV-connective tissue disease type. I think in young patients with really high pressures, I always make sure I double check to see if there's anything on the group one differential. For group two, I think of left-sided heart disease, especially given this membrane in the left atrium, her likely diagnosis and this concern for obstructive blood flow. When I think of group three, I think of those due to pulmonary diseases and hypoxia, which seems relatively unlikely in this case. And for group four, I think of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, which technically she hasn't been ruled out for because she hasn't had a VQ scan, which is more sensitive compared to a CT angiogram and pretty unlikely to have group five, which is usually associated with multifactorial conditions, technically to unclear mechanisms, but I usually think of conditions like sickle cell disease, sarcoidosis, and metabolic disease, which are certainly possible, but given this lack of clinical history and things pointing us all towards a cardiac etiology, I feel like group two is jumping out at me right now. Interestingly, for group one, congenital heart disease is classified under those conditions. Typically, we think of shunt lesions causing Eisenmenger syndromes, and I don't think we saw any evidence of any intracardiac shunting on her imaging. Amanda, based on everything that we're seeing with this case, do we think triatum could be causing this pulmonary hypertension simply from a group two effect? Thank you, Vid. Yes, definitely. I think that this is consistent with group two pulmonary hypertension due to left-sided heart disease, given that we have an obstructive lesion with a gradient of 25 millimeters mercury on the left side from the core. We definitely can see these patients progress to a group one PAH picture with this long-standing passive congestion in the pulmonary vasculature system. As you mentioned, congenital heart disease can contribute to group one PAH. It's a small proportion of group one PAH, but the number of patients with congenital heart disease in certain types of congenital heart disease, such as core triatum, who have uh, group 1 PAH from their own pathophysiology is not insignificant. We have a little bit more data on this patient, both clinically and based on other objective data. Tomio, do you care to tell us a little bit more about the clinical course? Yeah. So when we encounter rare diagnoses like this, it's really important to just get back to our physiology roots. And you mentioned earlier that this can physiologically mimic mitral stenosis. So we can use those physiologic principles. The same principles we use are to avoid congestion by diuresing the patient, which can be really difficult with these patients, as well as avoiding hypovolemia since this is a preload dependent lesion. Likewise, when patients are really tachycardic, they have reduced ventricular filling because we primarily fill during diastole. So it's really important to treat any underlying causes of tachycardia or tachyarrhythmias. But 
you know, this patient does have a very narrow therapeutic window as we see in our severe mitral stenosis patients. Too little volume, they can get hypotensive due to the fixed obstruction. Too much, they can have pulmonary edema. In this patient, using AV nodal blockers to slow their heart rate down couldn't be used when they hit the door because they were too hemodynamically unstable. Fortunately, as she became more bradycardic with the targeted temperature management, she became more stable and we were able to come off of some of her vasopressors. It was really important that we thought about the differential diagnosis for her pulmonary hypertension. In many cases of patients who have severe pH, it's useful to have hemodynamic data from a right heart cath. But given that the patient stabilized, we felt that we were able to use the echo data and data from her central line to assess her cardiac output and filling pressures. One question that I have, Amanda, is that given that this is such a rare diagnosis and that the patient was presumably born with this, how can we explain that this patient was developing symptoms so late in life and not manifesting earlier in childhood? Great question, Tomio. So like I said, for patients who have obstructive core triatriatum, especially sinister on the left side, early on, they can present in infancy or early childhood with vascular congestion, pulmonary vascular congestion, respiratory difficulty, respiratory infections, and also signs of low cardiac output with failure to thrive. However, in patients who don't have any obstructive lesions, that can go one of two ways. One, they can survive an entire lifetime with no symptoms and no clinical manifestations. And the other subset of people we think have what we call subclinical disease in that they do not have an obstructive lesion initially, either due to a small fenestration or connection that allows more blood flow through from the superior posterior chamber into the inferior anterior chamber and then through the valve into the LV, or potentially they have another interatrial connection. However, over time, the core triatriatum membrane can become fibrotic or calcified, and that can lead to a gradient that becomes significant later in life, which is what we think maybe that happened to this patient, is that she had subclinical disease early on, and over time, she developed acquired pathophysiology that tipped her over into clinical manifestations. Interestingly, in her case, she presented with atrial arrhythmias, and there is some data to show that atrial arrhythmias are associated with core triatum sinister. There is something about the membrane that can cause kind of scar-like tissue, or there's some sort of mechanical deformation there that causes an increase in atrial arrhythmias, which may be why these patients with core triatum sinister are diagnosed a little bit more commonly than core triatum dexter. Interestingly, at this time, the patient you mentioned didn't have a PA cath, but she was treated, not with durable treatment. Tomia, do you want to describe a little bit about what you know of treatment that outside of medical treatment? I know you mentioned medical treatment with close attention to volume management and treatment of tachyarrhythmias and treatment of underlying causes of sinus tachycardia, but what do we know about long-term solutions to these patients? Great question. Unfortunately, we do not have a lot of data on these patients, which seems to be kind of the theme of adult congenital patients in general. Given that this is such a rare disease, most of our data comes from case reports and case series and retrospective studies. As with any structural problem, it really needs a structural solution. So these patients really need surgery to resect the membrane. We thought about that for this patient, but given that she was so sick and she had an unknown neurologic prognosis, we felt that the patient was too unstable to undergo a cardiac surgery, although we did have the discussion with our adult congenital and our cardiothoracic surgeons. So for stable patients who are able to undergo surgical resection of the membrane, this really offers a, a durable result. 
Retrospective studies performed in both children and adults show that while some patients may have a residual gradient, which is thought to be due to incomplete resection rather than membrane recurrence, these patients generally remain asymptomatic throughout their life. Unfortunately, this patient suffered an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and did not have any purposeful neurologic recovery after she was weaned from the therapeutic hypothermia protocol. So surgery would not have benefited her in the current state. Her case was rather unfortunate. She never regained any alertness after weaning her sedation, and she actually developed myoclonic seizures requiring loading with multiple anti-epileptic drugs. She was unable to be weaned from her ventilator due to her status epilepticus, and then eventually she became bradycardic on hospital day six, and then she lost her pulses. A code blue was called. She briefly obtained ROSC and then arrested again, at which her family was called and the patient was allowed to pass comfortably. Given the unclear etiology of what happened, her family requested an autopsy, which we have learned a lot from. Vid, can you walk us through the autopsy findings? Yeah, so her autopsy showed that she had evidence of coritrate triatum, where her pulmonary veins were connected to a left atrial chamber that was separated from the larger portion of the left atrium with a fenestrated membrane. They also found that she had right ventricular hypertrophy with a wall thickness of 0.7. Her coronary arteries were clean, but her pulmonary arteries and veins all had intimal thickening and fibrosis. There was also evidence of hepatic and pulmonary congestion, which all indicate the upstream effects of the restrictive membrane. It's interesting that they also found that there were multiple acute thrombi in the subsegmental pulmonary vessels. If we recall back to admission during her CTPE, there was no evidence of any PEs on there. So, Tomio, what did you think of these new findings? We can't fully explain it, but there are two possibilities. One, that these emboli were small enough that the original CT scan could not pick up on it, or that these are new findings that contributed to the patient's clinical decompensation. In any case, when I think of a clot, I think of Virchow's triad, just to go back to basics, which are factors that predispose a patient to thromboembolism. The components are one, hypercoagulable state, two, endothelial injury, and three, stasis. In this patient, she actually fulfills all three. She has hypercoagulability from her illness, endothelial injury from her pulmonary hypertension and her cortrae atriatum, and stasis due to immobility in the ICU. This patient does not have much cardiopulmonary reserve, and I would hypothesize that the insults of her infection and pulmonary emboli on top of her congenital heart disease were enough to explain her demise. In contrast, we do not feel that the patient has had long-standing group 4 pulmonary hypertension from CTEF that led to her original presentation, given that she had no prior history of thromboembolism, her echo didn't show any significant RV dilation, and that her autopsy findings showed acute thrombi rather than organized fibrotic strands in the distal vessels, which would indicate CTEF. So to sum up, this patient has had a very concerning medical history of exertional syncope. The team was actually able to obtain her previous workup from her hospitalization four years ago, which actually did show that she received an echocardiogram that showed a thin membrane within the left atrium. However, the patient was instructed to follow up and she was eventually lost to follow up, which prevented further workup and treatment. She then moved here and had further fragmentation and delays in her medical care. So this patient really had a long-standing history of subclinical disease, and it sounds like her cortriatriotum membrane became progressively fibrotic and stenotic that led to her symptoms over the last four years. This in turn caused her pulmonary hypertension to get worse, and ultimately she got to a point where her RV couldn't keep up. It's hard to know what exactly happened around the time of her cardiac arrest. We hypothesize that it could be due to a tachyarrhythmia episode where she syncopized and had her cardiac arrest, but we can't really know that for certain. 
ultimately her cause of death was cardiac arrhythmia in the setting of pulmonary hypertension and right-sided heart failure caused by atrium, which was the cause of death on her death certificate. They also noted that there was likely a significant contribution from the subsegmental pulmonary thromboemboli. To our knowledge, this is the first time that sudden cardiac death has been described in this disease entity. So, Tomio, I feel like you really put together what happened in this case for me. And it seems like everything that happened in this very rare, complicated, and pretty sad case of a young patient with a rare cause of cardiac arrest has definitely taught me a lot of learning points. I think the main things that I learned are to remember the H's and T's for a cardiac arrest and identifying the causes and workup in patients with pulmonary hypertension. That core triatriatum sinister is among the rarest congenital heart disease and is characterized by an intracardiac membrane within the left atria and that its symptoms can include those of syncope, chest pain, and heart failure. That the diagnosis of core triatriatum is made by imaging and is typically identified at birth. That the membranes are likely hemodynamically significant if the pressure gradient is greater than or equal to 8 millimeters of mercury. And that the pathophysiology of core triatum can mimic mitral stenosis with medical management including maintaining euvolemia, but there's a very narrow therapeutic window. AV nodal blockers and avoiding tachycardia can also help with diastolic filling time in these cases. And that surgical resection of the membrane would offer durable results if this clinical course had looked different. Vid, Amanda, Tomio, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this very important case and really demonstrating how much compassion and care you put into patients, both when they present acutely and also just thinking about the patients in such a big picture in such a thoughtful way. It's really demonstrative of the great clinical work that goes on at UW. And so thank you for joining us today and sharing this very important case. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate that you invited us here. And with that, we will transition to our eCPR segment with Dr. Jill Steiner, who's a junior faculty member in adult congenital heart disease at University of Washington. But more than that, she is a friend, a mentor, a researcher extraordinaire, and someone that I look forward to working with in the future as a colleague. I'll start by saying congratulations to the CardioNerds team and to our UW fellows for putting together an excellent presentation of a pretty complex case that I think has a lot of great teaching points. And thank you for having me here for the eCPR segment of this presentation. You know, I think what made this case pretty difficult is that we only met this patient at her presentation for cardiac arrest. Much too late to really do anything about her adult congenital heart disease, which I'll refer to as ACHD. Meeting a post-arrest patient is always difficult. If they are unable to communicate, and they often are, we have to rely on family or friends and prior health records for collateral information. Sometimes we have no information about who that person is, and then we are guided solely by speculation and clinical findings. And in these cases especially, it is important to have a broad differential diagnosis with the input of a multi-level multidisciplinary and multi-specialty team so that we don't end up going down some incorrect pathway because of cognitive biases. This patient had a PAN-CT as part of standard cardiac arrest assessment with a high clinical suspicion of something like a PE causing her clinical presentation. But that scan showed us something rare and probably not at all in the initial differential, a triatriatum, shifting our impression of her situation. As you heard in the main segment, Cortriatriatum is considered a very rare form of congenital heart disease. We don't have extensive epidemiologic or even population-level data about this lesion, so it's probably a little bit more common than the 0.1 to 0.4% attributed to it. The reason for this lack of data is twofold. 
The first is that even though some form of congenital heart disease affects roughly 1 in 100 babies, that's still a relatively small number, and that translates into an even smaller number of adults since there are still, despite our many triumphs in this field, a significant proportion of children who did not make it to adulthood. So the absolute number of cases of congenital heart disease that are seen by any given practitioner is going to be exceedingly low unless they're in a concentrated setting. And then take one rare lesion within this group, like Cortrea triatum, and numbers are going to be even lower. Even at a place like UW, which has a large and well-established ACHD program that serves five states, I can only think of a handful of patients with Cortrea triatum that I've encountered in the last few years. The second reason for this lack of data is that we have no centralized method for tracking most of what goes on in medicine in this country. Because of the way our medical and insurance systems are set up, as you are well aware, we can't reliably track the details of care in the way that countries like Canada or the Netherlands, which have more universal healthcare systems and therefore registries, do. But from the case series and the small studies that we have on Cortrea triatum, a sizable chunk with people who have a membrane have no obstruction, or at least no obstruction that reaches the roughly 8 millimeter of mercury cutoff, which is considered clinically significant in contemporary cohorts. Long-term surveillance is therefore employed, usually with echocardiography. But for most people, the gradient never really changes. There is the possibility that the membrane can calcify or fibrose over time, which can increase the gradient to a level of significance. The membrane itself doesn't necessarily grow over time, or at least we don't think it does. And even when there is a significant gradient, then it takes years from that point or the hemodynamic sequela, like pulmonary hypertension, to develop to the point of any clinical manifestation. So lots of room for missed opportunities to intervene because care is fragmented, people move away, etc. I do think it's important to mention here that there are a few classifications for Cortrea triatum, specifically Cortrea triatum sinister. The Loeffler classification is based on the appearance of the fenestration in the membrane, both the size and whether there are more than one fenestration. In group one, there is no fenestration, and so pulmonary venous blood must reach the mitral valve via some other connection. In group two, there are one or more small openings, and in group three, the communication is large and usually single. This is most commonly group three, what we see in adults, because had it been group one or group two, it would have been typically recognized and therefore addressed earlier in life. The land classification is based on the location of the pulmonary vein drainage in contrast to the Leffler classification. In group A, the proximal atrial chamber receives all of the pulmonary veins, and there are subgroups to group A based on whether there is an ASD present between the right atrium and either the proximal or distal chamber. In group B, the pulmonary veins drain into the coronary sinus, and in group C, there is no connection between the pulmonary veins and the proximal chamber. There are also three primary theories about why triatum develops. In the malincorporation theory, there's a problem with the way the common pulmonary vein is incorporated into the left atrium, which is similar to the cause of total anomalous pulmonary venous return. The entrapment theory goes as far as saying that the common pulmonary vein is trapped specifically by the left horn of the sinus venosus, preventing typical incorporation. And in the malseptation theory, there's a problem with overgrowth of the septum primum leading to the extraatrial chamber. While the congenital heart disease lesion in this case is pretty rare, the fact that this patient had fragmented and frankly insufficient care for her ACHD is all too common. We can't help but wonder if she had gotten more consistent care earlier in her disease course, could this outcome, the unexpected death of a young and seemingly healthy person, could it have been avoided? 
We typically think of congenital heart disease as being diagnosed in infancy or in childhood, but it is important to remember that as discussed in the main segment, that is not always the case, that some lesions don't get diagnosed until much later in life, usually because they aren't causing any significant hemodynamic abnormalities up front. In this patient's case, her diagnosis of congenital heart disease came in adult life and maybe even after she had developed some pretty significant consequences given her reported history of years of exertional syncope as the cause for evaluation. It's been speculated that up to three quarters of patients with congenital heart disease are not able to receive the long-term adult cardiology care that they should have. This is largely due to inadequate numbers of adult congenital heart disease specialists, but it's also due to inequities in insurance and healthcare access and in underdiagnosis and underrecognition of congenital heart defects by non-specialists. So it's important for any clinician, PCP through cardiologist or like the neurologist in this situation, to have a reasonable index of suspicion for structural or congenital heart disease when someone presents with something like syncope, which absolutely warrants an echo to look for these findings. Care fragmentation between medical systems and lack of communication between electronic health records is also a huge problem in this population. The transition period between pediatric and adult cardiology care is a really common place where congenital heart disease patients fall out of care. Maybe upwards of 25% of patients are lost to follow up at that time. So it's important for clinicians to be intentional about that transition, to start preparing their adolescent patients for it as they become ready, and to do all that they can to complete the transfer in a safe manner. But even outside of that time, people move, insurance comes and goes with jobs and life events. And some patients just have a hard time following up consistently when they're feeling well. Things are getting better as electronic systems are more and more able to link and talk to each other. But that quote-unquote paper trail, that verified medical history, is so important in ACHD. We often find ourselves without key details that could have contributed to better outcomes. Even though we eventually learned of this patient's prior medical workup, and even though we did get an autopsy after her death, There are still a number of unanswered questions about this case, and we can only speculate about the causal relationship between her quartet triatum and how things ultimately turned out. The last thing I'd like to add, and here's my soapbox, is that bad things can happen to anyone. But especially in ACHD, sudden medical events like cardiac arrest are definitely a possibility. And for this reason, it is important to have a designated person or persons who know not only what your medical history is, but what kind of care you would or would not want if you were suddenly very sick and unable to speak for yourself, like the situation in which this patient found herself. In the palliative care world, which is my research hat, we call this advanced care planning. And I recognize that palliative care and advanced care planning are not the focus of this episode, but these are not bad words. And we should encourage anyone, including ourselves and our patients with ACHD, to spend a little bit of time thinking about what is important to them and what they would and would not consider acceptable outcomes of a health emergency so that we can better guide care in their future.